morning, everyone. Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Before I head into the book of Jude, I thought I'd do a few messages um, that I started actually doing right before uh, COVID, and then all everything changed a little bit. Uh, and so I want to go back and just look at some of these passages that deal with really spiritual gifts, everybody serving in the body. Before I look at that, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, this morning, as we come before you, and as the summer is winding up, and uh, September is here, and we're getting back into the fall of things, back to school, back to regular routine, I pray, Lord, that we would always be available to use the gifts that you give us as Christians to be ministering to the body. So, Lord, your body is built up. It's Your name is glorified, and, Lord, um, that people are growing in the Lord. So, Lord, I pray that from your word you would just expose our heart, show us where we're at, so we can, if we have not been, getting more plugged in and involved in ministry in the church. And I pray and thank you, Lord, for those who are serving, who have been sacrificial, who have used their gifts, who have given their time, uh, and Lord, I praise you for them, and, and I pray you would give us more, that our whole church would be characterized by servants. And we know, Lord, from the word of God, those who are greatest in the kingdom of God are those who serve. And I thank you, Lord, for what you'll do, and I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I had read this um, antidote not too long ago where um, a man named Mel Johnson wrote it in what he called Getting It Together. And he said, wrote this, he says, about the church, about getting involved in the church, and sometimes people don't get that. And he said that Fred somebody, Thomas everybody, Peter anybody, and Joe nobody were neighbors. But they were not like you and me. They were odd people and most difficult to understand. The way they lived was a shame. All four belonged to the same church, but you would not have enjoyed worshiping with them. Everybody went fishing on Sunday or stayed home to visit with his friends. Anybody went to worship but was afraid somebody wouldn't speak to him, so guess who went to church? Nobody. Nobody was the only decent one of the four. Nobody did the visitation Nobody worked on the church building. Once they needed a Sunday school teacher, everybody thought anybody would do it, and anybody thought somebody would do it, and you know who did it? You're exactly right. Nobody did it. It happened that a fifth neighbor, an unbeliever, moved into the area. Everybody thought somebody should try to win him for Christ. Anybody could have 
anybody could have made the effort. Everybody thought somebody should try to win him for Christ. Anybody could have made the effort, and you probably know who finally won him. Nobody. And the moral of the story is, each of us is personally responsible for doing God's work. We all do this by using our spiritual gift regularly in our own local church body. And let's not assume, let's not assume somebody, everybody, or anybody is doing it because it will end up being done by, you guessed it again, nobody. So the church is the visible body of Christ on the earth. In verse number 12, if you look at that verse, it says, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. The local churches are hands to do his work, feet to run upon his errands, a voice to speak for him. And as his body, the church, should exhibit Christ to the world until he returns. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, draws a picture of unity which really should exist inside the church. It is, it, uh, if it is to really fulfill its function in the world. So the body analogy remains uh, something that Paul uses often. But it reminds us that certain things need to exist within a healthy body. A body is healthy and efficient only when each part is functioning consistently and in the proper way. Also, the parts of the body do not act as if they are jealous of each other or covet each other's functions or remain ignorant of what the others are actually doing. The body works as a unity, and not in competition with one another. So all spiritual gifts are given to God's church, the body of Christ, and they have a common origin and function within a common organism. When the Apostle Paul speaks about spiritual gifts, he does so with the analogy of a human body. In particular, Christ's body, the church. So Jesus Christ continues to be a living spiritual, be in a living and a spiritual relation to the church, his body, and all spiritual life and power of the local church are drawn from Christ, the head. Jesus Christ is sovereign over the body, the church, He is the source of its life. He is its chief. He is its leader, the one who guides and governs it. And the term church, from the Greek word ekklesia, means called out or called out from a lost humanity. The term is really best interpreted as a term embracing all the redeemed people of God. The word of God often uses the term body to refer to 
a local body of believers that is meeting together to worship God and then functioning together to do God's work. Actually, the term body suggests several points of importance. The first is that the church is a living organism. It's not a dead organism. It's a living. It's composed of members joined vitally to one another. A second thing is that the church is the means by which Christ carries out his purposes and performs his work. The Lord Jesus carries out his work through the people and lives his life through that body. And when spiritual gifts operate through any member of the body, it is the manifestation of Christ's life at work. The church, as the body of Christ, should be Christ's means of communication, not only to us in the body, but also to to the external world. And the third thing would be that the union which exists between Christ and his people is a most intimate and vital union, and together with Christ, it constitutes one living unit, each in a sense being incomplete without the other. In our own doctrinal statement, the Bible, uh, in, in our statement, it says we teach that the Holy Spirit ministers spiritual gift to the church and that the Holy Spirit glorifies neither himself nor his gifts by showiness, but does glorify Christ by implementing his work of redeeming the lost and building up believers in the most holy faith. So there are certain points of understanding that ought to be found in every local church if the body is to function as God intended it to function. We need to think correctly concerning the use and function of spiritual gifts in the body. Now, the the meaning of spiritual gifts would be... uh, It's a concept that comes primarily from the Greek word charisma, meaning an endowment of God's grace, something given out of grace and not a debt, but a spiritual working of God within an individual believer. So a spiritual gift, therefore, is imparted because of God's grace, and then there's reasons for why he imparts that gift and the gift or gifts to the church. So exploring this section of Scripture this morning, and this is part one of two, should really greatly enhance each member's understanding in the area of service, specifically using their God-given gift or gifts within the body. So it brings me to the first point this morning in verse 12 and 13, is that the church body is really one organic whole. Notice what it says in these two verses. It says, for even as the body is one, verse 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, even though they are many, are one body also, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, We were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink 
of one spirit. Now, if you notice in those two verses that the term one is used five times, and the term is used throughout these two verses to the fact and pointing to that the body is one organic whole, yet its various parts perform widely different functions within a unity. And just as there is a is unity in the midst of diversity that pervades the physical body, it also characterizes the body of Christ. It was Francis Schaeffer uh, who, writing in his uh, book on true spirituality, said that the basis, basic thing, when he was talking about um, unity within the body of Christ, he said the basic thing is not organizational unity, though it has its place in the church. The human body is directed by the head. The hands are not in direct relationship with each other. The reason they cooperate is that each of the hands, each of the joints, each of the fingers is under the control of a single control point, and that is the head. Block the body from the head, and the body becomes spastic. The fingers, for example, could never find each other, and uniformity of action could come to an end in that body. It is exactly the same with the church of Jesus Christ. The real unity is not basically an organizational unity. The real unity is not one part. The real unity is really not basically that of organization, as I just said. But the real unity is not of one part with the other parts, but the unity in which each part is under the control of the head and therefore functions together. The unity of the church is basically the unity of the head controlling each part. And we know the head of the church is Christ. Christ will be functioning like hands. And, of course, in the end, Christ is the head of everything, controlling all things within the body, so the work of God can get done within that particular body. So the church body has really an outward formation and an inward life brought together by the Holy Spirit, which is the head, which, which brings me to verse number 13, talking about the outward formation of the church body. It says, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. So it is like a physical body in this respect. Though composed of many and varying members, the body is still one. And every member, having been inducted into the body through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, no matter how assorted, the backgrounds all have been made a unit in this spiritual organism, the life principle of which is Christ himself. So in other words, that the Holy Spirit is the immediate agent of baptism. So then spirit baptism is the divine action where, whereby really all Christians, at the moment of conversion, 
That is the effectual calling where you're no longer resisting the call of the Holy Spirit, but you are now brought, being brought by God to believe in Christ as the only way for our salvation. At that point, a person becomes, uh, becomes part of Christ's body. And if you notice the phrase in our, our passage where it says, where, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, this means that not one single person in Christ is excluded from being part of the spiritual body, the church. It doesn't matter what religious background one gets saved out of here, the Jews, or Racial background one gets saved out of, here the Greeks, or the social stratum a person may belong to before conversion, here slave or free. Again, the only prerequisite to becoming part of the body of Christ, the church, the true church, is a genuine faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And every time, a person is converted to Christ, spiritual baptism is repeated. That is how the real church gets members. You become a member of a real church at conversion. In other words, if you're not converted, if you haven't believed in Christ, then you cannot be part of the body of Christ. So on the other hand, a person can join a church, go to that church, and even become active in that church and not be part of the body of Christ, the real church. And that happens more often than we like. So spiritual baptism is purely an invisible action whereby the Spirit of God places the believer in Christ into the mystical relationship known as the body of Christ. Therefore, the Spirit Baptism is not verified by an outward sign like some would say tongues. That if you speak in tongues, that is a sign that you're a part of the body of Christ. There is no sign. In fact, we teach in this respect that God the Holy Spirit is sovereign in bestowing all his gifts for the perfecting of the saints, and that the speaking in tongues, the interpretation of tongues, the gifts of miracles, the gifts of healings are given in the beginning days of the church for the purpose of pointing to the judgment of the unbelieving nation of Israel and or the Gentiles being included in the gospel offer and or the authenticity authenticating the uh, apostles as the revealers of divine truth and are in no longer in operation today. That's what we hold to. We believe the scripture teaches that. But there is this outward sense in which God is outwardly bringing people from the world and bringing them into the church. He is converting them, and then what he is doing, then there is the inner life of the church body. And the inner life is mentioned in verse number 13. It says this, And we were all to drink of one spirit. Now the Holy Spirit is also doing something else while he is 
He performs the inner baptismal act. And what is he doing? He is making us to drink of one spirit. The figurative expression is consistent with the scriptural custom, which refers to the Holy Spirit as by the symbol of water, like like the Apostle John uses in John chapter 7 and verse 37, where he says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come and drink, uh, come to me and drink. And then in verse number 30, um, 38 and 9, he says, He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believe in him were to receive. And at that point, the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus Christ had not been glorified yet, but it was the promise of the Father that when the the church was going to be outwardly formed, something was going to happen inwardly to the individuals of that church. And what was going to happen is that they were going to receive the Holy Spirit. So along with this inner baptismal act, the Holy Spirit also takes up residence within the individual Christian. And that is called in Scripture and theologically the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit comes to make his permanent abode in the individual Christian at the time of conversion. And Paul, and Paul of course, brings this up in ever other books of, that he has written. And he, like he says in Romans chapter 8, verse number 9, However, you are not of the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. So this inward indwelling is going to be an evidence that someone has been baptized into the body of Christ and now has the Spirit indwelling them. And Paul went on to say in Romans, he says, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to him. That means he's not a believer. He's not in the body. He may be going to church. He may be regular in church, but doesn't have the inner life going on inside of his soul. See, that's what makes us different than just church attenders. We are part of Christ's body. We have the living uh, spirit in us and the spirit of God, the first person of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy, uh, Holy Trinity, the second person lives his life in the various members of his body and the visible evidences of that life is manifested through spiritual gifts. So a spiritual gift can be defined like this, the ability given to an individual believer by God in order that the believer might serve God effectively in some particular way. I'm not going to be listing the gifts this morning. I'll do that next week. But just be thinking through where, where do, you, do you know you gift? Do you know that you have one to be able to minister it in the body? And do you have the Spirit of God indwelling you? Do you know that? Also, in part, it's part of really the anointing of the Holy Spirit who sets us apart as believer priests and giving believers both the position and ability to serve the Lord effectively. 
Now, this is what God does. So he, he doesn't just save us and take us home. He saves us. He puts us in, in the body. He keeps us here as the church, as the real church, and he then gives us spiritual gifts to be able to minister those gifts within the body so that body can become healthy and that body can now do what spiritual gifts ought to do. All right, so the second point in my text that I'm coming to this morning is this, that the church body is a unit and yet with many members. Now, of course, Paul is correcting a problem in the Corinthian church. We're going to see what that problem is uh, this morning. For it says in verse number 14, it says, For the body is not one member, but many. Now, it seems like this is a hard concept, uh, not only for the Corinthian church, but for many people, is that we are not just, we don't stand alone as believers. We are part of a corporate body, each functioning the way they ought to. So each member of the body has a part to its own work. And this means that each part has a responsibility that can be handled, really can only be handled by that particular gifted person. Yet, yet it remains, even though there are many, yet it, the church remains a unit. So there's two primary reasons why Christians never become involved serving their local body of believers, according to Corinthians here. And the first one would be that of having an inferiority complex. See, some feel that they have no gifts or abilities that are worthy, and so sit back and let others do the work. These are described in, in really 1 Corinthians 12, 15 through 17, and they're really missing a blessing when they don't understand that. And then secondly, there are others who have a superiority complex, and they feel that they're so highly qualified that they don't really need the help of others to perform their ministry. And, of course, they also lose out. So both of these groups that Paul is mentioning here are committing actually the sin of pride. One said, one group says, they don't need me, while the other says, I don't need them. Others would say, I don't have a gift, or I have a second-rate gift. And still others would say, it doesn't matter because I'm so unimportant. So all these are really self-centered ways of looking at what God is doing in the body. And if they remain with this attitude, they actually become an affront to God's love and God's wisdom and how he designed the body. So this morning I want to take a look at the first group the group with the inferiority complex. And those with the inferiority complex are thinking too lowly of themselves. They're thinking too lowly of their spiritual gift. By complaining or depreciating its, its position or its importance in the function of the body. 
And this is how Paul lays it out in verse number 15. The first group of body parts that he uses uh, in verse 15 is the foot, the inferiority complex using the foot. It says, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not part of the body, is it not for this reason any less a part of the body? So in other words, the foot thought that it could not be part of the body because it wasn't a hand. See, the hands are have visibility. The hands can't perform many abilities like writing poems and songs and, and building things. But the feet, they can't really do those things. The foot is generally unappealing. It's usually covered. It's usually in a sandal or a shoe. It's usually covered by possibly a dress. It's not very visible. And if it's in a sandal, it's getting dirty. And if, it, and if it's in a shoe too long, it's getting stinky. So feet are really only good for odor eaters. So it concludes, I'm not as visible and gifted as the hand, therefore I am not needed and so not part of the body. So the principle is really clear. No member can accomplish its own removal from the human body by complaining or depreciating its own importance. Therefore, everyone has a responsibility to accomplish something toward the growth of the body, no matter how inconspicuous their gift may be. It may not be visible. Matter of fact, you may not even be around many people while you are ministering your gift. But nonetheless, your gift is important. So here is a Christian whose gifts are less conspicuous because he or she is never in the limelight and seldom gets noticed so they get discouraged over their own gift status. So this is what the Apostle Paul referred to like in Romans 12. Either you look at yourself too low or you look at yourself too high. Both sides of the coin, one side of the coin is pride, the other side of the coin is also pride, because you're saying to the Lord, Lord, you haven't given me anything, and yet God says, I've given you something. And then you say, well, I, ha I don't have the gift of teaching, so who am I? Or nobody even knows what I'm, who I am or what I'm doing, so who am I? See, that's the, the completely the wrong way of looking at it. A person not discerning properly how the Lord gifted him or her and fit him into the body or can become trouble to the body and trouble to themselves, actually, because they begin to grumble and allow themselves to become discontent and jealous of those who have more visible gifts, and usually those gifts are speaking gifts. See, they fail to realize every member is important no matter how hidden from view. In fact, the whole body is somewhat crippled when one member is not functioning. They're just sitting by the, on the sidelines. They just have their arms folded. They're letting other people do the work. And God, yet God says, well, that's not how I designed the church, so you got it wrong. You need to find out what you're spiritual gift, and get involved in 
the body. Christians need to realize they have been given a spiritual gift and that only they can actively use that gift to edify the body. So Christian, you and I need to be content and properly evaluate whatever abilities and gifts God has uniquely bestowed upon you and then use them. Now, if you look at verse number 11 of chapter 12, it says this, but one in the same spirit works all things distributing to each one individually just as he wills. So God is saying, if you are saved, if you are part of the real body of Christ, if you have the Spirit of God living in you, you have at least one spiritual gift. Use it. Find out what it is and use it. Because that's what brings glory to God. And then Paul says, well, if you didn't get that, I have another inferiority complex problem, and that's in verse number 16, where he says this, and if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not part of the body, is it not for this reason any less a part of the body? See, the ear thought it was left out because it wasn't an eye. The eyes are visible. They're colorful. They could be made very glamorous. But the ears, well, they're on the side of your head. A lot of times you, people don't necessarily recognize them, and sometimes they're filled with wax. They do not necessarily build, build ego. Therefore, they say, I, I, I'm not needed and not part of the body. So you see, the Corinthian church, and here's the problem, was caught up in the eye and hand gifts, the visible gifts, the out front gifts, the gifts that can be noticed and praised. And they were neglecting the other gifts. But he is saying here, no, those gifts are more needed than those visible gifts, or they're needed equally. So many Christians have, have really never known the joy of ministry and of pleasing the Lord simply because they have not recognized their spiritual gift or gifts, and maybe they're crippled because they're thinking wrongly and they're, they have unbiblical thinking concerning spiritual gifts. So Paul continues his analogy of the body to receive, to give us further counsel just, if, just in case we didn't get it. So we cannot be individuals or stand alone. Being self-sufficient is actually Satan's philosophy. It's not God's. Remember, when we come to the church, it's no longer I, it's us, right? It's, it's always the plurality within the body. So in order to, to actually avoid the inferiority complex, there are several things to consider about the church. And here's the first thing in verse number 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were a hearing, where would the sense of smell be? In other words, the first thing is that no individual part in the body is equal to the whole. And he means here that no organism 
can survive where only one member is involved, no matter how prominent that member. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, takes a, a prominent member of the body, the eye, and a less prominent member, the ear, and concludes that the body is limited without the hearing and the nose for smelling. There shouldn't be spiritual loners in the body. No child of God should understand his or her own importance as a member of the body if, they don't under, if they're thinking incorrectly about how God has gifted them. They need not to covet the prestige of another in God's sight because his operation in placing each member in the body is, is significant, which really brings me to the second thing to consider when we consider avoiding an inferiority complex in the body where you say to yourself, well, I'm nobody, nobody needs me, nobody recognizes me, I really can't offer anything to anybody, uh, and so therefore I'm not needed in the body. That's kind of thinking that's going on here. And yet, secondly, it would be this, that no, indivi- no individual chooses themselves where they are placed in the body. That choice is God himself. Look at verse number 18. It says, but now God has placed the members, each of them in the body, just as he desired. Wait a minute, this is the work of God. Not only is salvation and conversion a work of God, not only is God bringing the church together out of the world the work of God, but God giving you an individual spiritual work To do a gift in the church is God's work also. That's what he desires to do. And who knows you better than God? You don't even know yourself that well. And God knows you. He knows exactly what you need. He knows exactly the gift that uh, he wants you to have. So God has planned this. We have not determined this on our own. God has placed, appointed a sign to be uh, a place that he arranged things in the body. So God, by divine appointment, fits his body together so that there is a wisdom that lies behind the placement and ability of each member that cannot be disputed, that a Christian cannot select his own spiritual gift or gifts and determine the place that they are in the body. We cannot question the wisdom of God. We need to cooperate with the wisdom of God and give ourselves over to what God has done in our lives, not only in conversion, but in using us in the church. And then God's pleasure alone determines his gifts. So instead, really, really we should be thinking rightly and soberly and thank the Lord for calling us to salvation and calling us to service and then with diligence actively use our spiritual gift to edify the body of Christ. This is the will of God for each one of us. Nobody's exempt from this. No one. There's a third thing. If there's no variety, there's no body. Verse number 19. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? So God's design, he designed the body with with diversity and variety. And the point here is that no one can exist if it is 
if it only consists of one member. It's absurd to think a body with one member. What would we be? If we had one member as a body, what would we be? We know we would be a blob. That's what we would be, a blob. God did not design the church to be a blob. Christians need to understand that they are no island. They cannot stand alone. But their place and their particular function in the body is vital. I need your gifts. You need my gifts. That's the way God designed it. So variety is mandatory for any organic unit. And then fourthly, plurality and diversity, but unity. In verse number 20, it says, but now there are many members, but one body. So God is bringing, really Paul's bringing them back to the same point. Within the body, there's many members, many gifts that he, he is, uh, that are operative today in the church. And he wants you to function in those gifts as unity as one, as one body. And that means everybody's cooperating, everybody's using their gifts, and then what happens when that takes place is that the purpose of gifts actually become manifest in the church. So in this passage, it's really the same point said in a different way that the body of Christ is composed of people with a wide variety of gifts and and, uh, capabilities. A few gifts are showy, but most are not. And yet all are needed for the body life to exist and continue as a unity. So what is the purpose then of God giving gifts to the church? Well, there's really a threefold purpose. The Apostle Peter brings one of those purposes up in 1 Peter when he lists the gifts. And he says in 1 Peter 4.11, the first purpose is God's glory. When this takes place, when people are functioning in the church with their spiritual gift, God gets the glory. And this is what Peter says. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom brings to who belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So when that happens, God gets the glory. God saved us. God brought the church together. God has gifted us, and I'm enjoying the gift he gave me because he knows exactly what I need and where I need to serve in the church, and I'm enjoying that. I get fulfilled by that, and when I do that, God gets the glory. But a second thing that happens is it's for the common good of the church. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, 7, where it says, but each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good of the church. And, of course, the common good means that the church is helped and blessed with growth when we use our gifts that the Spirit of God has given us. And then a third purpose for spiritual gifts would be that of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 
and verse number 12, where Paul writes there, so also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. So that's it, that the church is built up. When you and I are using our gifts, and that we're not sitting on them, we're not complaining that we don't have a gift that we think we should have, but we are happy the way God has designed things, and we're cooperating with the Spirit of God who indwells us, and we want to use the gift that God has given us so we can bring glory to God, so that we can be uh, be a help and a blessed part of the body to the church, and then part of building the church up, strengthening the church, making it strong. So no believer, no believer can biblically say that they have no gifts or abilities that are worthy to build up the body. Nobody could say that. No believer can sit back and just let others do the work. There's something wrong if that's happening. After today's message, at least, this first part, you can no longer be a spectator. All believers are chosen to do their part in building up the body to, for the help of the church and for the glory of God. So this is just the first part. The next time we're, I'm going to look at the superiority complex. But each of us, are personal, personally responsible for doing God's work. We all do this by using our spiritual gifts regularly in our local church, manifesting Christ's life at work through us, through each one of us, and therefore then fulfilling why God designed it this way in the first place. So let's not assume somebody, everybody, and anybody is doing the work of ministry because in the it will end up being done by, you guessed it, nobody. And that's what the Lord doesn't want. And not only that, when you use your spiritual gift, you, you are encouraged. You, you are fulfilled. Matter of fact, you walk away wondering, wow, God actually used me. And you're surprised almost. And believe me, you want blessing to come, then use your gift in the church. Find out what it is first. Find a place to serve and then use it, and then you'll experience the results of that. Amen? So then, if nobody does it, though, God will not receive his glory in that place the whole church body will not be helped and blessed with growth, and the whole church body will not be strengthened and built up for the unfinished work of Christ. That is ultimately to get the gospel to those who haven't heard it yet. Right? So ponder those things this coming week, because I'm going to be pressing you on it. In this sense, if someone should ask you today, what is your spiritual gift? and you tell them what it is, then the next question should be, then where have you used it in the church? And then give me an example on where you used it. Because believe me, I need your 
what God's given you, and you need what God's given me, because that's how God designed it. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you, Lord. We, we want to be servants. We really do. We want to know what you're doing in our life. So, Lord, we can bring glory to your great name. So we can see the church get built up. So we can be edified ourselves in that we are strengthened when we use our gift and we know that you are pleased with us when we do so. Oh, Lord, I just pray, Lord, at this time in our church body that you would, Lord, work upon our hearts, help us to be honest with ourselves. If somehow, Lord, we have this inferiority complex where we think that we're not gifted or that we think that um, we should have another gift or we think we have a gift that we really don't have, Lord, show us what it is. So, Lord, we can avoid this particular complex. And, Lord, we can get in the program and on um, what you want us to do. And then, Lord, go in there and just live for you, serve you, use our gifts, and then produce the results of what real gifts are for. Thank you, Lord, for what you're going to do. Thank you, Lord, for those people who already know what, what their gift or gifts are. And thank you, Lord, for using them and for the servants that you have given us here in our church. Continue to multiply us, Lord. Multiply servants. And, Lord, I pray as we serve you, we would do it with joy. And we would do it, Lord, from a heart that is willing. And I pray as we do that, Lord, you would be pleased with us. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.